Hi, good evening. If everyone could uh, please take their seats, we'll start the meeting. Uh, I would like to welcome members and guests, and especially uh, our speaker tonight, Ed Bonacamper, and his wife, Susan, to the 714th regular meeting of the Chicago, the, the Civil War Roundtable of Chicago. Um, tonight, to start off our meeting as we do always, let's uh, please stand to do the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to this republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Thank you, everyone. Please be seated. And while everyone's being seated, well, I'd like to please call up uh, Tom Trescott to do our sesquicentennial moment, please. Thank you, Mr. President. This date, 150 years ago, October 12, 1862, was not an especially good one for the Union. After brief, brief skirmishing near the mouth of Monocacy, Jeb Stuart's Confederate cavalry crossed the Potomac back into Virginia, completing the Chambersburg Raid, his second uh, ride around George B. McClellan's Army of the Potomac. He had taken the war to civilians, capturing about 1,200 horses and destroying Emory property while traveling 126 miles in a week without losing any of his 1,800 troopers. Meanwhile, Naval Agent Commander Matthew Fontaine Maury, on board the blockade runner Herald, departed Charleston for England with the mission to lobby the British on behalf of the Confederacy, acquire commerce raiders, and do further experimentation with electric torpedoes. And in Washington, information on Perryville and the status of the Army of the Ohio were still sketchy four days after the battle. President Lincoln wired General Boyle in Louisville, we are very anxious to hear from General Buell's army. We have heard nothing since the day before yesterday. Have you anything? Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, Tom. And just a reminder for everyone, we have the raffle uh, going tonight. Uh, all that money goes towards uh, battlefield preservation, so if you want to take a look at that. Also, uh, Ed brought several of his books, um, so if you want to, after um, our dinner and before the, the talk and, or afterwards, he'd be more than happy to sign them and, please, and sell them to you. So please uh, take a look at those also later this evening. And let's start dinner. Yes, we're uh, finishing dessert right now. What I wanted to do is just read a couple of quick announcements and uh, before we take our break. So in the back of your uh, flyer or bulletin, if you haven't seen this, for some of our uh, members that are doing presentations, but uh, tomorrow, October 13th, at the Ridge Historical Society, uh, Bruce Allardyce will be speaking on the 10 worst Civil War generals. Also tomorrow, up at the Kenosha Civil War Museum, Rob Girardi will be uh, doing a presentation on the art of history, working with Keith Rocco. October 16th, Lincoln Davis Civil War Roundtable. Uh, Bjorn from the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop will be doing a talk on the battles of Corinth and Davis Bridge. October 19th, Salt Creek Civil War Roundtable. Jan uh, Rasmussen will be doing a, a talk on the Civil War mascots. Also on the 19th, the Union League Club Roundtable. There'll be a reception for uh, Guy Fraker. October 20th, Barnes & Noble in Cherryvale, Mall, Rockford. Rob Girardi will be doing a book signing. And also on October 20th, that week on October 20th, October 21st, Dolger Farms near Joliet, there'll be a Civil War Days reenactment. So those are some of the announcements on the uh, back of your bulletin. Uh, right now I'd like to bring up uh, Donna Tui to talk about members and guests, please. 
Well, tonight we have a small exclusive group. Uh, Naomi Brooks, are you here tonight? No? Okay. And we have uh, Bill Grebe and Jean Grebe. They have been here before. We got a check mark. You're supposed to be here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Alan Maniscalco. George Van Dusen. Uh, Ina or Ina Werner. Where are you? And we have our two special guests, Ed Bonkepper and Susan, his wife. Where are you? Right here. Welcome to everyone. Thank you all for coming. Okay, why don't we uh, take our 10-minute break now. We'll start, uh, start the rest of the presentation at 7.35, please. And also a reminder the, on the raffle, thanks, Cindy. Uh, on the 10-minute break here, we'll start up again in 10 minutes. Uh, a reminder, uh, the raffle tickets are for sale in the back. And also, uh, if you want to take a look at Ed's books that he's brought, also for signing or purchase. Thank you. Okay, if uh, everyone uh, can please take their seats again. We'll uh, resume the program. I'd like to call up uh, Mark Matranga. What we do is uh, we want to talk about the, our next two tours, and Mark's going to come up here and talk about our 2013 trip to Antietam. So, uh, Mark, take it away. Good evening. Uh, as you all know, we're going to Antietam uh, in the spring, May 2nd through 5th. Uh, we'll be uh, hanging out at the Clarion uh, Hotel in Hagerstown. Maryland uh, to uh, set up for the tour and we will be visiting sites at South Mountain uh, spending a lot of time on the uh, Antietam battlefield and uh, visiting Sh uh, Shepherdstown West Virginia as well uh, we hope to have a nice fun night affair at the mama barn on the also back on the uh, on the uh, yeah. battlefield premises so it, it uh, it's a beautiful part of the country it's a beautiful time of the year to go uh, the pricing of the tour will be out shortly on the website, and certainly by next month we'll have handouts uh, with the uh, full itinerary, etc. Uh, so we're looking for everyone uh, to come and remind all that if you de make a $100 deposit before January 1st or the end of uh, December, that is, you will get a free T-shirt. You'll want that. <laughs> Chef's surprise. <laughs> All right, thanks, Thank you. thanks a lot, Mark. And uh, just, just a reminder on that, so that's the 2013 tour is Antietam. Um, Paul and Rob aren't here, so what we'll do is uh, Gettysburg is our 2014 tour. So uh, like Mark said, the information's on the website, and uh, we'll try to get ready to have everyone sign, start signing up next month. Uh, for right now, I'd like to please call up uh, Cindy, and we're going to uh, have our raffle, please. So Cindy and Sharon will come up. Okay, thanks to everyone that bought tickets. We raised $110 for Battlefield Preservation. And I'm going to let our speaker pull the first ticket. <laughs> 902 
not taking the string. Okay. Did you pull the next Nine oh two one forty six. Okay. Nine oh two one eight eight. Nine oh two zero zero zero. Thank you very much, everybody. Okay. All right, thank you very much, Cindy. Uh, right now, we'd also please like to call up uh, Tom Trescott for our quiz, please. Thank you, and before the quiz, I've got a crass commercial. Um, uh, I'd like to let everyone know about a book event we're having at the Lincoln Bookshop, Saturday, October 20th. That's a week from tomorrow. At noon, we're having two uh, authors, two new, excellent new books. Lance Hurtigan, who has spoken here many times with this new and definitive uh, history of the Iron Brigade, and Guy Frakers on uh, Lincoln's Letter to the Presidency, an interesting new book on Lincoln's law career. So again, that's at noon uh, at the Lincoln Bookshop, uh, Saturday, October 20th. If you can't be there in person, go to virtualbooksigning.net, watch this online, and it's 10% off for Civil War Roundtable members. Now on to our regularly scheduled quiz. Edward Bourne Camper speaking on Lincoln and Grant, the Westerners who won the war. One, true or false? Ulysses S. Grant supported Abraham Lincoln in the election of 1860. That is false. He actually was uh, supporting Douglas. Two, who did Secretary of War Edwin M. Stanton send as a special agent in April 1863 to send back daily reports to him and Lincoln on Grant, but who got along so well with the general that his glowing correspondence helped in Grant's promotion? That's Charles A. Dana. Three, um, I feared it was a mistake. I know, and I know I typo there. I now wish to make the personal acknowledgement that you were right and I was wrong. When Abraham Lincoln wrote that to Ulysses S. Grant, to what campaign was he referring? He's talking about Vicksburg. Four, what did Lincoln revive with Grant in mind by signing into law April 29, 1864? That is, reinstating the, the rank of Lieutenant General. Five, true or false, Grant wanted to conduct a campaign to capture Mobile in 1864, but Lincoln vetoed the plan for both political and strategic reasons? That is true. Six, true or false, Lincoln worried that Grant had presidential aspirations in 1864? That is also true. Seven and eight, which two of the following officers met with Grant on the River Queen to discuss end-of-war strategy in March 1864? That is um, E, David D. Porter, and G, William T. Sherman. Nine, true or false, after Appomattox, Grant suggested to Lee that he go to Washington and meet with Lincoln to help restore peace? That is true. And ten, what reason did Grant give in regretting Lincoln's invitation to Ford's Theater? That, of course, is D. He was going with Hurlbut. No, no, no. It was B. He and his wife were, meeting, were taking a train to New Jersey to see their children. We had two perfect tens, Mike W. and Nathaniel Lyon, and no White Sox Bruce. Okay, if I could just uh, remind everyone before we start the talk, everyone, please uh, silence your cell phones or please turn them off. So tonight, uh, we welcome to the Civil War Roundtable of Chicago, Ed Bonnekemper. Ed earned his uh, Master's in History at Old Dominion University and is a graduate from the Yale Law School. Uh, Ed has taught courses at Muhlenberg 
college in U.S. military history, the American Civil War, and World War II. Uh, Ed has written numerous articles, and he's also written many books on the Civil War. And the w book that we're going to be uh, the focus of the talk tonight is going to be Lincoln and Grant, the Westerners that won the Civil War. Please welcome Ed Bonnekemper. Thank you, Brian. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a pleasure to be back with the Chicago Civil War Roundtable. Uh, and uh, to get things started, I want to recognize the fact that, that you all do a fantastic job. I go to many, many, many roundtables, and, and you've got two of the, of the youngest members uh, that I've ever seen. And uh, I knew of one. I knew of R.T. Well, R.T.'s famous, of course, right? Uh, uh, R.T.'s grandmother happens to live um, very close to us in the same community uh, where we live in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. And I came in and I saw this other youngster tonight. Uh, and uh, that's Matt. And I, I appreciate both of you gentlemen coming up front, please. Just want to recognize your presence as the young blood that Civil War roundtables need to keep alive. I want to present both of you with uh, posters for you to decorate your walls with. Uh, Matt, that's for you. And I know you already have that one, RT. So I brought another one on uh, the following for you to finish the decorating of your bedroom. So. So keep up the good work in, in, in encouraging, uh, encouraging uh, young blood in roundtables. That has to be uh, a nationwide priority. Uh, and speaking of crass announcements, um, uh, on the table back there, uh, there are posters uh, like, uh, like that uh, one I gave to Matt. And if you bought a book or if you buy a book, please pick up a poster. Uh, it goes, it goes with, with any book purchase. Okay, we're gonna, we're gonna move along pretty quickly tonight. Uh, because I've got a lot of ground to cover. Now let me just start off by simply telling you how I got to the point of writing this book. Uh, about 20 years ago I started writing a book that took me seven years to write part-time called How Robert E. Lee Lost the Civil War. I was dumb enough to live in Virginia when I wrote the book. <laughs> uh, and uh, anyway, that got a lot of attention and continued to sell, to sell very, very well. Why did I write that book? I thought it had to be told. My, my thesis is this. That uh, this is the big thesis. There are a lot of mini theses in the book. The big theses are number one, that Lee was way too offensive, way too aggressive as a Confederate general. The Confederacy did not have the burden of winning the war. There were all kinds of reasons why, in the war, you did not want to be the attacker, you wanted to be the attackee. And uh, with the Southerners already being outmanned almost four to one in white men of fighting age, not a smart thing to do to decimate his own army, which is what he ended up doing. The second big problem I have with Lee is he was a Virginian first, a Confederate second, and he did all kinds of things that showed that he either didn't know or didn't care what was happening outside of the state of Virginia. Um, in the course of researching that book, I found that in order to deify Lee, because we know that Lee is the mini-god of the myth of the lost cause, and that basically is the, uh, the most effective means of educating Americans about the Civil War in the first 110, 120 years after the war came from the myth of the lost cause, created by um, uh, Southern generals originally and, and later by uh, people who sympathized with the Confederate position. And uh, Lee was the god of that religion. Uh, and in order to deify Lee, uh, it was felt necessary to denigrate Grant. And so uh, Grant came down to us, sort of a 
a drunken butcher. Uh, in, in two words, that was, that was the essence of the criticism of Grant. So I wrote a very positive book about, about Grant, which I felt really had to be told, uh, called A Victor, Not a Butcher. Uh, and I explained such things as the fact that in the course of the Civil War between uh, Fort Sumter and Appomattox, there were three armies that surrendered to anybody on any side. All three armies surrendered personally to Grant. Uh, Grant's casualty numbers are very, very, very good considering what he did. I'll get into that in just a second. And I go on and on to explain my view why Grant was the greatest general of the Civil War. Um, Next, a general jumped out at me, and that was George McClellan. And the reason he did was because I looked at Lee, I looked at Grant, and I realized, number one, McClellan was the guy who made look, Lee look so good. McClellan was really, he was the one that Lee read him like a book and played him for a fool. Uh, and uh, so he ran rings around McClellan, and that made Lee look very good, especially in the year, the critical year of 1862. Um, and it's really a pretty tragic story. The guy was a genius. Uh, and uh, uh, but it boils down to this: that because of McClellan's uh, lack of moral courage to fight with his superior resources against the enemy in an aggressive manner, which the North needed to do to win the war, he didn't do that. He was very reticent, uh, and his failure really caused the war to be a four-year war instead of a two-year war. Uh, having done all that, I had gone out to lots of roundtables, such as this one, discussing Lee book, Grant book and got a lot of questions about, well, how do you compare the two of them? I've looked at individually. So my fourth book is a dual study of Grant and Lee called Grant and Lee, Victorious American and Vanquished Virginia. That pretty much says it all right there. Uh, and then uh, in that book, I've got about 40 pages of statistics. I started doing this in the Grant book, realized I hadn't done it in the Lee book. So in the fourth book, I did all the statistics for Grant and Lee. What it did was I consulted all the historians who covered the generals and the battles and the campaigns and the statistics of the Civil War, and I laid them all out for you. And then I did not create new numbers. I picked what I really honestly felt was the, the best, most accurate number for each battle and campaign. And so I've got the numbers for the respective casualties, which I will show you in just a moment. Um, at the end of those four books, I then began thinking about the relationship between presidents and generals. Uh, you've got Davis and Lee and Davis and his other generals. You've got Lincoln and all his losing generals and then Lincoln and Grant. And then it suddenly occurred to me, I wonder what's been written on Lincoln and Grant. And I was astounded. In 150 years of Civil War historiography, no one had done a book on Lincoln and Grant, really the partnership that won the war. And the closest to it is a wonderful book called Lincoln and His Generals which goes through all the losers and then finally gets to Grant. Uh, but I really think that it's, it's interesting to look at the personal relationship between the two of them and say, well, why, why were they so successful? And that's what we're here to, uh, to focus on tonight. Now, let me put the Civil War in perspective. Uh, this is important because it has to do with, I think, I think that's in focus, but a little hard to see. I don't know if the lights can be dimmed a little bit or not. Uh, but the point I want to make with this, and you don't need to see the detail, is the Confederacy in all Texas is out here. The Confederacy is huge. Now, Kentucky, uh, this is the Confederacy from a Confederate point of view because both Kentucky and Missouri, which we know as border states, never left the Union, yes, but they were also represented in the Confederate Congress in Richmond. And so the Confederacy considered all this part of the Confederacy, and even if you ignore those, 
and just take the 11 conceded states, the 11 seceded states that everyone concedes left, that is a huge area, it's like Western Europe, and the burden was on the North to conquer this territory, because these states had left, they said we were independent, and it was incumbent on the North to beat them, all the South needed was a tie or a stalemate. Lee didn't seem to realize that, he acted as though he were a Union general with unlimited resources, and attacked, attacked, and attacked. Grant did the same thing, but Grant was consistent with the strategic uh, obligations of the North, whereas Lee's actions were not consistent with the strategic strategy that the South should have had, in my opinion. Okay, so we've seen big nation state needs to be conquered, and Grant becomes the leading general in doing that. Now, I'll throw up one more, I'm gonna throw up one more slide that I guarantee you won't be able to see the details, see the details of, of this transparency, but I will just point out the highlights. What I've done is I've taken the the Western, let's get it up here, the, the Western theater, the Middle theater, and the Eastern theater. My, my hypothesis is that you can't just say there's Virginia and Antietam and Gettysburg, that's the East, and everything else is the West. Because in 62 and 63, determinative years in the war, there were Confederate and Union armies facing each other essentially in three places. I'm ignoring Trans-Mississippi. But you had uh, the Virginia Theater, you had the Mississippi Valley Theater, and then you had everything in between, which essentially is uh, Perryville, Chattanooga, Chickamauga, Atlanta, and ultimately the Carolinas. And I label that as the Middle Theater, because that's where the armies lined up against each other. And it's very important for analysis because you have to ask yourself, during 62 and 63, where should resources be put, especially by the outmanned Confederates? Where should the resources be placed? Uh, and so we have here first the Western, the Western Theater, see if I can get that a little higher, okay. Um, in the Western Theater, the important thing about the Western Theater, and this is, this is all Grant, all Grant, after the Vicksburg campaign, there is no Western Theater. Grant has won the Western Theater. He's captured the Mississippi Valley. So 64 and out here 65, there's nothing in the Western Theater. Now, in the Middle Theater, Grant only gets involved one time, but boy does he get involved. Right here in the Chattanooga campaign, after the disaster of Chickamauga, Grant gets involved, saves the Union Army, and provides the basis then for Sherman Atlanta, Atlanta, March to the Sea, uh, et cetera. Uh, uh, Grant saves the Army and really uh, puts the Middle Theater back on the board, saves it for the Union. And then Grant finally is brought east, uh, and as you were told in the quiz, and as you know, he was made Commander-in-Chief, and he went, he went into the field uh, with Meade and the Army of the Potomac, and so Grant is here. Overland campaign, along with its battles, Petersburg campaign, following the Appomattox campaign. So what we've got, we've got Grant all over the country, major roles in all three theaters. He won the West, he won the East, he had a critical success in the middle theater, and he did all this while Lee was here. Lee was only in the East, uh, and actually he picks up right here, Peninsula campaign, seven days of his first active campaign. This is Robert E. Lee right here. Okay, so we see Grant commanding about six armies in three theaters. He's a winner everywhere. And we compare him 
Robert E. Lee, who commanded one army in one theater, which, by the way, he lost. But they didn't think about that and say, how the heck did we ever get this viewpoint that Lee was this fantastic, great uh, uh, general, one of the best in world history, and yet, uh, and yet, when you start stacking up and see who did what during the war and had this come out, Grant clearly was the victor, and he was a victor everywhere he went. And the issue really becomes then, well, how efficiently did Grant perform? Of course, we have the reputation, Grant the butcher, he only did it by massively outnumbering the enemy and throwing his troops uh, into, uh, into suicidal attacks. And the, the one place that that is true, one place that that is true is the Overland Campaign, and there are some reasons for that. Uh, and um, on the other hand, uh, Lee, Lee has escaped a lot of criticism for launching equally suicidal attacks at Malvern Hill, at Gettysburg, uh, uh, parts of Chancellorsville, etc. Uh, and the problem for Lee was that it all came back upon him eventually because he decimated his army in 62 and 63. So overall, war casualty analysis with 40 pages to back it up as to where I got these numbers. Uh, deal with Grant first. Grant, six armies, um, three theaters, victories everywhere, does it with 154,000 casualties. Now, as you know, casualty is not a death. A casualty is killed, wounded, missing, or captured. Killed, wounded, missing, or captured, common measure of military effectiveness. Grant, while he suffered 154,000 casualties, he imposed 191,000 on the enemy, so he ends up being plus 37,000. Pretty impressive for what he did. Quite frankly, I would say, if he had been a minus 100,000, minus 100,000 for the war, that would have still been pretty spectacular, given that the North had the burden of winning the war, had to attack in a war in which 80% of the time, tactically, the defender won, mainly because of the weaponry that now existed. Okay, Lee, let's give him a, a, a plus here. Lee is plus 31,000. He took down 31,000 more of the enemy, or captured them, or killed them, etc. Uh, but the problem here is the problem right here. Lee commanding one losing army in one theater takes 209,000 casualties. Now, given what he accomplished or did not accomplish, that's pretty phenomenal when you consider it's 55,000 more casualties than Grant took commanding six armies in three theaters, all which he won. So, uh, so I think that the numbers tell us a story. And if you ask me for one number about the Civil War, it would be this one right here, Lee suffering 209,000 casualties. And that's why a lot of troops had to be transferred from other theaters uh, into, into Lee's theater. Now let me take just a minute and give you some background. I cover this in more detail in the book, but you're Midwesterners, and, and I think you can appreciate uh, some of these insights. You probably have a lot more than I do about this. But I think that what were then Westerners, in the area in which you live, the, the, the Westerners of that time were very different than Easterners. Once you crossed the Appalachian Mountains, you were in frontier country, uh, and you were also not locked into the views of the North or the views of the South. And the area uh, of the Midwest, of the West at that time, was settled by people moving in from Virginia and Tennessee and Kentucky on the one hand, and from Pennsylvania, New England, New York on the other. And there was a great mixing, and Illinois in particular, you're familiar with the political battles of the 1850s, the Lincoln-Douglas debates, and uh, the pretty dirty politics that went on at that time, with Illinois being 
just a classic example of the Chicago and Northern area being very pro-Union, pro-North, anti-slavery, the South being uh, an adjunct of the South, and middle Illinois being the battleground. That's where the elections were decided. And uh, the beauty of it was that if you were Lincoln and you're thrown into the hotbed of politics for about three decades before the war, you, you had heard it all. You had heard it all. If you lived in the West, you, you understood what the South, the Southern position was. You understood the Northern position, and you heard them debate it, and then you made up your mind. And so it was, it was a place where people were a lot more open to listening to other points of view, and I just think that there was a, a common sense attitude about them, and uh, both, both the people we're talking about here worked their way up through that system to ultimately very, be very successful. Now, uh, uh, Lincoln's success came both before the war and during the war. Grant's only came during the war, with the exception of his skills in the Mexican War. Now, uh, just, uh, just to touch on this, Grant, Grant, as you know, was born in southern Ohio, very close to the Ohio River, and then uh, after West Point, lived a lot of his life, uh, the bulk of a, of a decade, really, in Missouri, very near St. Louis, and then 10 months before the war, moved to Galena, Illinois, which, of course, has claimed him as their own ever since, uh, <laughs> and, 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 and justly so. They gave him a nice house afterward. It's a beautiful town to visit. Uh, but so so he he became an Illinois, but he was a Western. He was a Westerner all the way. Lincoln, born in Kentucky, moved to Indiana, moved to Illinois, uh, and uh, just a classic Westerner of the time. And they both had enough relationships with the river system. We know Lincoln's riverboat trip down the down the New Orleans. They had enough relationship to the river system. They understood the value of the river system to America. And boy, talk about something that was great training for the Civil War, uh, they, they had a very different perspective on things, and I think they had a very different uh, attitude about life, and they didn't, they didn't think that they were owed anything by anybody, they worked for what they got, and, and, uh, and I think that paid, paid dividends in spades during the Civil War. Um, I won't say any, anything more at this point if you want to explore the Q&A with Ken, but I just wanted to give you a little flavor of the kind of backgrounds they had, which I think then blend in with how they worked so successfully during the war and what they accomplished. Okay, first of all, let's take a look at Grant's, Grant's early battles and campaigns. Now, uh, this, this is early in the war. Now, first of all, Grant couldn't find a job because he had resigned from the military in disgrace, 1854, had the drinking problem, which was a problem before the war, not during the war. Uh, but the, his name was Mud. Uh, he could not get a job. People would not talk to him. But of course, he was so successful at voluntarily training Illinois regiments in Springfield that the governor picked him out and, and gave him a uh, gave him a regiment, the 21st Illinois. Excuse me. When he proved so successful as a commander, and when the commander of that regiment failed, uh, and Grant Grant then immediately thereafter benefited from being from Galena. Galena was the hometown of Elihu Washburn. Uh, one of the several Washburn members of Congress, and Elihu Washburn happened to be the most senior Republican member of the House of Representatives. He probably designated about seven generals during the Civil War. What did general of the Civil War be from, be from Galena? He had a one in a hundred chance of becoming a general. Uh, and uh, so without Grant really earning it, he, got, he was uh, nominated by Lincoln and was promoted to Brigadier General. After that, 
he earned every promotion uh, on the battlefield. But that was very important because that promotion put him in command in Cairo, Illinois, of the Division of Southwest Missouri, which encompassed this area here. And early, only a few months later, uh, he was given an assignment to go to Belmont and create a distraction for a Fremont adventure in the center of Missouri. And uh, what Grant did was he turned it into a minor battle instead. Uh, uh, but he also demonstrated the capability of, of using deception. And he did several things at this battle that kept the uh, Confederates who were across the river in Columbus, as well as camped at Belmont, in doubt as to what his plans were. I think there are, there are numerous examples where Grant uses deception, he uses speed, uh, and to keep the enemy off balance. And he did not just win uh, battles because he was, uh, because he outnumbered the enemy. Now this one actually I would have to call a draw. He fought his way through Confederate lines, captured the camp, his men then just uh, uh, were looting the camp, he lost control of them. They realized Confederate reinforcements were coming from across the river from Columbus, and they had to get the heck out of there. So he had to fight their way out again. He had actually launched two successful attacks that day, uh, casualties 600, 700 on both sides. He escaped. This brought him to the attention of Lincoln. Uh, the reports that he had some general out there who was actually willing to fight. That sounded pretty good to him. Uh, then um, Grant tried to follow up on that. He went to St. Louis. He talked to uh, General Halleck, who was the Western Theater commander, and said, I think we ought to go up to Tennessee and up to Cumberland and capture these forts because it's going to open up this whole area of the Confederacy. Halleck threw him out of his office, uh, maybe because Halleck didn't like the fact that, that Grant was sloppy, he wore a private blouse, he wasn't fancy, he didn't, he didn't go by the book, uh, and he just wasn't part of the club. And of course, Grant carried the reputation of being a drunk. I mean, that, that was known throughout the army. Uh, and so, uh, and Halleck had a big ego, and Halleck said, uh, those decisions are to be made by somebody far senior to you, get out of here. So he didn't even let him complete his, his um, recommendations. But now we see the Lincoln-Grant relationship starting, starting to come into play. At this point, it's simply because of similarity of views. Because at this point, Lincoln is fed up with McClellan in the East, McClellan and the Slows. Uh, McClellan's not moving, he's not doing anything. So Lincoln, in desperation, issues General Orders Number 1 at the end of January of 62, and he says, I want all military, all military Union commands to move forward against the enemy by not later than February 22nd, which of course is Washington's birthday, which tells you right away, ah, this sounds like it may be uh, as political as it is military, uh, but he's sending a message, he's sending a message saying, get moving. Okay, Halleck saw that and realized, and, and, and Grant's troops, there was a whole listing of which troops this affected, and it said, including the troops at Cairo, Illinois. So Halleck understood what he was being told. He said, okay, you guys can go ahead and do this. And so Grant and Flag Officer Foote of the Navy uh, went up to Tennessee uh, with gunboats and transports. And to make a long story short, the gunboats, uh, after not more than a two-hour gun battle with the fort, captured the fort. And so the Navy got all the credit. Soldiers hadn't even arrived yet. Uh, and uh, it's probably appropriate because the fort was fully located. It was half underwater, and the surrender was taken by rowing into the fort. Uh, <laughs> at that point, Grant then crossed cross country, uh, it's only about 15 miles, but the weather turned really bad. Uh, the, the boats had to go back down to Tennessee. Some of them went to Cairo for repairs. 
came back up here, they picked up reinforcements and supplies, then came up the Cumberland River to Fort Donaldson. Well, Fort Donaldson had, was wisely located, uh, had guns, elevated guns, and uh, it decimated the Union gunboat fleet. Uh, so Grant had to capture Donaldson uh, with his soldiers. Uh, we don't have time for the details tonight, but suffice it to say that he launched a counterattack that closed an escape route uh, at great personal risk to himself, uh, flying around the battlefield. His troops pushed the Confederates back far enough that they were in a position where they had to surrender. His old friend, uh, uh, Simon Buckner, uh, asked him for terms, and uh, Grant said, no terms, unconditional surrender. So all of a sudden, U.S. Grant became unconditional surrender Grant, and he became a national hero for the first time. This is early, early in the war. I can't stress that too much. Lee's not even in command for a few months late, till a few months later, because he had a significant command. So February 1862, Forts Henry and Donaldson both fall. A 14,000-man Confederate army surrenders to Grant, all off the northern prison camps. That's Union, that's Confederate army surrender number one, is at Fort Donaldson. Books have been written about this campaign being the decisive campaign of the Civil War. And there's some rationale for that, because at this point, Union gunboats could go all the way down to northern Alabama, down to Muscle Shoals, Alabama, uh, destroying Confederate vessels, supporting Unionists along the river. Uh, and over here, they could advance to Nashville, a state capital, major manufacturing and supply center for the Confederacy, capture it, put it out of sync for the rest of the war for the Confederates. And so this is a big sword in the Confederate left flank. And as a matter of fact, the Confederates, who I have mentioned before, had occupied Columbus, Kentucky, which was a stronghold on the Mississippi River, had to abandon that and go all the way back down here because they were flying. If they stay there, they're going to be, they're going to be in serious trouble. So big effect on the Mississippi River at the same time. Major, major campaign, Fort Henry and, uh, and Fort Donaldson. Um, the next thing that developed was Shiloh down at the bottom. I have to mention first that after, after his big victory and uh, congratulations from the president, uh, Halleck puts Grant in a hold status. There's a debate whether it was technically an arrest or not. There's no question holding him back at Fort Henry for about seven days while his whole army, his whole army went all the way down here to the Shiloh, Pittsburgh landing area. Uh, Grant is not with them. And uh, what happens, we don't know all the details, but it looks as though what happens is word quickly gets back. Washburn, congressman from Illinois, goes to the White House and says, what's going on? The White House asked uh, uh, Secretary of War Stanton and, and uh, General-in-Chief at the time, uh, McClellan, what's the story out there? And essentially, McClellan comes back to Halleck and says, put up or shut up. What's going on here? And Halleck has nothing. Halleck, by the way, has written to Washington and among other things, he says, we hear stories that Grant has resumed his old habits. You know what that means. And that was what was always used against Grant by anybody who wanted to oppose him during the war, whether it was reporters who were cut off, uh, rival generals, etc. Um, anyway, Halleck had nothing to put up, so he shut up and he just wrote to Grant and said, you know, Washington's been asking some questions about you, which was kind of the flip-flop of what actually happened uh, and said, but I've covered for you, and so you can, you can go on now and join your army. Now, a few years later, when Grant uh, became general-in-chief and read the War Department correspondence on this, he got a slightly different view, 
And if you read Grant's memoirs, there's not a single nice word about Howard in there because he knew that Howard had tried to stab him in the back in early 1862. But Lincoln was there to cover his man because he knew this, this guy was aggressive. He was the kind of person that the Union needed to win the war. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes Grant could be a little too aggressive. He was very focused on the enemy and what he was going to do to the enemy. And so there are several examples where he doesn't pay attention to what the enemy might be doing to him. They might have some plans too. And so he and Sherman, who was now uh, in, in, in a place as a major subordinate of Grant, he and Sherman uh, at Shiloh ignored very clear signs that there was about to be a large Confederate attack. And on April the 6th, a Sunday morning, April the 6th of 1862, there was a large attack uh, by the Confederates at, uh, at Shiloh. Let's see what I've got there. Uh, that's probably good enough. Um, Grant's army, the, the Tennessee River is back here. Grant's army starts the day here. After a couple hours, they're pushed back to here. By the end of the day, they're back here, having almost been pushed into the river. And by the way, another battle in which Grant is outnumbered. Uh, and uh, at the end of the day, the subordinates recommend that he retreats back across the Tennessee River to get the river between the enemy and himself. Now, Grant said, no, we'll attack at first light. We will attack first thing in the morning. Now, he had three things going for him. Number one was reinforcements under General Buell, which is why Grant was waiting. He was waiting here for these reinforcements to arrive because the two of them wanted to go down this road to Corinth, Corinth, Mississippi, which was at the bottom of my last map, which was a railroad crossroads of the Southwest Confederacy. He wanted to go down there and attack them. Anyway, Buell did begin arriving late that day and started to send reinforcements across the river. Number two, because of another mistake Grant made, uh, Lew Wallace and his division were not with Grant's army all day, and so they arrived about six o'clock at night as the fighting ended, which is bad for day one, but great for day two, because they had one-sixth of the army, which is fresh and ready to go, in addition to the reinforcements that were arriving, and he had the element of surprise. Uh, as you remember, Albert Sidney Johnston was the Confederate commander he was killed uh, that afternoon in a quirky, quirky uh, circumstance, uh, and he was replaced by Beauregard. Uh, um, Pierre Gustave Toutant Beauregard, I had to get that in there. PGT uh, <laughs> Beauregard uh, took command, and that evening sent a message to Richmond saying, we have won a great victory on this battlefield near Corinth. That was the last message he sent about the fighting there because he didn't want to report what happened the next day. And, and the next day, uh, the Union basically just rolled right back through the Confederates and pushed them back down toward Corinth, uh, which led to which led to the uh, uh, Corinth campaign. I put that in quotes, uh, which was commanded by Howard. Howard now came down to take charge. He had three armies: he had Grant's army, he had Polk's army, uh, he had uh, Pope's army, and he had General Buell's army. Three armies he commanded had 120,000 troops, just about the largest number of Union troops or anybody's troops at one place at one time in the entire war. And with those troops, uh, he took 30 days to move 20 miles, 30 days <laughs> to move 20 miles to threaten Corinth. And then at Corinth, one night, uh, the train whistles blew and uh, bands played as though the Confederates were reinforcing Corinth. They were actually abandoning Corinth. And so a 50,000 man army escaped. 
So how it claims victory? How we captured this great railroad crossroads of Corinth, which was our goal, right? That was our goal, right? And just ignores the fact that 50,000 troops have escaped, and those troops become the basis for Bragg's invasion of eastern Tennessee and Kentucky in the fall of 1862. And that was something that Lincoln and Grant understood. Your goal was not just points and places, your goal was destroy Confederate armies. As long as those armies are out there, you've got a problem, so go after the armies. Uh, Howard didn't learn that lesson, uh, and uh, uh, that whole campaign was a disaster for Grant personally, because when Howard came down, uh, he relieved Grant of, of command of the Army of Tennessee, uh, which had been Grant's army up to this time, and uh, moved Grant into a meaningless number two position as the multi-army commander, uh, and didn't, didn't consult with him, didn't use him at all. So Grant was a nothing. And Grant was relieved at that time by George Thomas. So George Thomas, great Union general, undefeated Union general, underplayed, underappreciated, but the problem was this created bad blood before, because Grant could not forgive Thomas for having been given command of his army, uh, of Grant's army, even though it wasn't Thomas's fault. And so they're like oil and water the rest of the war, and that really comes out at the, at the end of the war. Um, and um, uh, after, after this, there's, there's a lot of confusion in the West. You have the invasion of Kentucky, you have Perryville, et cetera. Uh, a lot of things go on. Grant's not a major player. Uh, he's covering the front, defending the territory he's already captured uh, uh, in the Southwestern Confederacy. But the big problem for the Union now is Vicksburg. Vicksburg is the stronghold on the Mississippi River. It's the last major stronghold, the only other stronghold being Port Hudson, south of there, and it's a given Vicksburg falls, Port Hudson will surrender. So the focus is on capturing Vicksburg, uh, which Grant ultimately does. Now, uh, this is the plan that eventually worked. Uh, but before this, Grant spent many, many months uh, trying to build canals, trying to get through the bayous with gunboats, uh, doing six different major projects, which Ed Bars describes in, in great, great, great detail in his three volumes set on Vicksburg. Um, after all that, uh, let me say, during the course of doing all that, Grant came under increasing attack to the press from his own soldiers, including Washburn's brother, a general in Grant's army, uh, writing to Washington. A lot of criticism of Grant as not having the slightest idea of what he was doing, being a total failure, uh, and, uh, and he, he should be relieved. He should be relieved. This is one of the many periods of time during the war when Grant comes under tremendous criticism and Lincoln stands by him. Lincoln said later uh, of, of this period of time, just before the successful Vicksburg campaign, Lincoln said, uh, I was the only friend, I was the only friend that, that uh, Grant had in Washington during this period of time. Everyone else was calling for his scalp. Okay, what was the great plan? The great plan was this. A Mississippi River runs down here. Uh, Grant's idea was to send his army down the west bank of Mississippi River, cross somewhere down here, get below Vicksburg, and come up. Because this area was the relatively vulnerable area to attack Vicksburg. Up here, you're like 200 miles of, of bayous and swamps. You just couldn't get through. Uh, and so you wanted to come in from the south. You couldn't get it from the water because uh, Vicksburg had something like 200 guns, dominated the Mississippi River, and that was the problem. That's why Vicksburg had to be captured. Um, but 
this was not uh, this was not the the uh, the totality of Grant's plan. What he did was, and this is sort of a, I harbor back to Belmont early in the war. Think about about uh, subterfuge. Think about diversion. So what does Grant do uh, to keep General Pemberton, the, the Confederate commander in Vicksburg, perplexed and in the dark as to what his plans were? First, he leaves Sherman with one third of his army in this area to directly threaten Vicksburg. And there was precedent for that because Sherman had unsuccessfully tried to attack Vicksburg the preceding December. Um, so Pemberton focuses on Sherman in the immediate vicinity. Number two, Grant sent uh, sort of a ludicrous uh, cavalry raid. It was a cavalry raid by about 3,500 troopers on mules over into, over, over into northern Alabama under uh, Abel Strait, I think was the general's name. Might have only been a colonel. And the nice thing about that, though, is Abel Strait created such a diversion that uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest never showed up in Mississippi. He stayed in Alabama. And that's one guy you really like to have in another state. So, <laughs> okay. So, so then, uh, then the topper was, and I think the most successful strategic cavalry raid in the, in the Civil War was another Illinois Benjamin, Benjamin Grierson took 1,700 troopers and, and from Tennessee went across, came down railroads over here, crossed to the center of the state, and then finally went down to Louisiana, tearing up railroad tracks and creating havoc throughout the state so that Pemberton sent his entire cavalry trying to capture him. He stopped 5,000 infantry reinforcements coming in from Tennessee, stopped them along this rail line, sent them out looking for, uh, for Grierson and his raiders, Never, never found them. Uh, just about caught them, but uh, by the time Grierson rode into Louisiana back to the Union lines, as he reached the Union lines, he could hear the, the guns firing at Grand Gulf as Grant was trying to cross the river down here. Now, I don't think that Grant planned it to be that close, but it was it, the way it worked out. Just worked out absolutely perfectly as a great diversion. So when Grand Gulf calls for help to Vicksburg and says. Uh, we've got a whole Union armada out here, send reinforcements. Pemberton delayed about a day and a half before he sent anybody down. And when they got there, it was too late. Grant had crossed with two thirds of his army and entered, uh, entered the state of Mississippi. Louisiana here, Mississippi over on the right. Uh, I, I will once again point out that during this entire campaign, up until the siege of Vicksburg, which followed a series of battles, up until the siege of Vicksburg, when Union reinforcements started being sent in, Grant was outnumbered in this theater at all times. Grant was outnumbered in the theater, but Grant knew where he was going. The enemy did not, and so at each one of the battles that was fought, Grant outnumbered the enemy at the, at the point of the fight. It's called concentration of force achieved through deception and speed. And, and all of that is what makes this one of the great military campaigns in military history. Now, Grant crossed the river. Here's a really interesting decision. Do I just go straight for Vicksburg because that's my goal? Remember Halleck and Corinth. Just go for Vicksburg. What the heck? That's easy enough to do. Go up to Vicksburg and capture it. But Grant, Grant realizes things are a bit more complicated than this, and he's got bigger goals. There are Confederate troops coming in from Tennessee that are out here. And just off this map, I think I can move this. Just off this map is Jackson. Jackson, Mississippi, which happens to be another state capital and another huge manufacturing center 
for the Confederacy. Well, railroad tracks are bringing reinforcements for the Confederacy here under Joseph Johnston. So Grant's concerned that if he goes north, he's going to have a Confederate force on his right flank. And he doesn't want these two Confederate forces getting together in some way to gang up on him. So he decides, I'm not going after Vicksburg first. I'm going to take care, take care of the problem over here. So he takes all his forces and goes northeast. And the big black river is between him and Vicksburg and him and Pemberton. Pemberton spends uh, about a week or more trying to find where is Grant and what is he doing and where the heck is his supply line. Folks, there is no supply line. Grant decided he's going to live off the countryside and, uh, uh, and do what he has to do. So he crosses the river, wins a, ba wins a battle at Port Gibson, wins a battle at Raymond, wins a battle at Jackson, comes back here, uh, finally turns on uh, toward Vicksburg after driving away the Confederate forces that were the threat to him in the Jackson area. Champions Hill was the major battle of the Vicksburg campaign. Grant was all over the place, again, a great personal hazard, and very active on the battlefield, very successful. Big win there, big Black River Bridge became a, a, a 20 minute route, and the Confederates were suddenly all back in Vicksburg, except there was one corps that escaped uh, and drifted out here and finally merged with Jackson. About 7,000 troopers escaped, uh, 7,000 soldiers escaped. But Grant trapped the rest, about 30,000 man army, in Vicksburg, and then Grant did what Grant usually does, and that was attack. And he attacked right away the first day he got there and took about 1,500 casualties. And that, that can be understood, they were on a roll. He didn't know how tough Vicksburg was, and the troops wanted to fight, they wanted to bring the campaign to an end. The mistake he made was three days later he attacked again. And partly because of another Illinois, John McClernand, uh, who had his own agenda, uh, uh, there were about 3,500 casualties that time, and Grant has been justly criticized for attacking that day and continuing the attack, although McClellan, or McClernand certainly did him no good. Uh, and uh, that was the end of McClernand, because McClernand then uh, issued a congratulatory order to his troops, which he had published in newspapers about how his corps had performed so, so well, and these other guys hadn't. And, uh, uh, and the, the technical mistake he made was he hadn't sent it to Grant first. Of course he had, because they wouldn't have gotten by Grant. And so Grant fired him for publishing something without the commanding officer's permission, and McClernand was gone. But what did McClernand do? Now McClernand had gotten into a position of great responsibility and was a real threat to Grant's command of this whole, uh, this whole campaign. Uh, because he had gone to the White House, he would gotten Lincoln's approbation to raise troops, etc. But uh, Halleck, believe it or not, and Grant outboxed McClernand, and McClernand showed up and he was subordinate to Grant because that's what the fine print of his orders said, and so he was not happy. So he finally got fired. He should have been fired probably many months before this. He was insubordinate for months. Uh, when, and when he was fired, what's the first thing he does? He appeals to Lincoln and asks for a court of inquiry. And uh, Lincoln wrote back and said, "If I gave the court of inquiry, it would be like uh, it would be like asking General Grant to resign, and I'm not going to do that." So this is another example of Lincoln giving great support to, uh, uh, to Grant uh, in the course of a, of a big dispute. Long story short, July the 4th, 1863, Vicksburg surrenders. Uh, they did, did not celebrate the 4th of July in Vicksburg until 1927. 
Uh, and uh, 30,000 man army, 30,000 man army was surrendered. So the Pacific Valley is now in Union hands. Uh, another army, army number two, surrenders to Grant, and Grant now is a national hero for the second time. No question about it. Henry and Donaldson number one, Vicksburg number two. Grant is a real, real national hero. Now you may have heard about the ones I've mentioned so far. The one you're probably least familiar with, but who it should be, is Chattanooga. Um, it was the one I learned about last, I must say. And uh, Chattanooga is the one I pointed to in the middle theater, the one time Grant got involved in the middle theater between the West and Virginia. Uh, and let's see if I can do a little better on that. I think that's a little better. Okay. Uh, what happened is in uh, September of 1863, down in Chattanooga, just south of the uh, uh, Georgia border, I'm sorry, south of the Tennessee border, Ch Chickamauga is in uh, Tennessee. Uh, I'm sorry, Chickamauga is in Georgia. Chickamauga is in Georgia. Well, it was such, there was such a rout in that battle. It was a two-day battle, about 34,000 casualties in a two-day battle. Uh, Confederates were only attacked the whole time. And uh, Rosecrans, General William Rosecrans, almost lost uh, his army of the Cumberland. And his army of the Cumberland fled back to Chattanooga for safety. And the only reason his army wasn't destroyed is because George Thomas, whom I mentioned before, was the Rock of Chickamauga. He held Snodgrass Hill, uh, Horseshoe Ridge, for all afternoon and into the evening to protect the retreat of the army. And then he conducted an orderly retreat of the rear guard back to Chattanooga. But the reality was the Confederates slowly followed up. Bragg caught a lot of flack for not really destroying that army at that time. Bragg slowly followed up and occupied the high ground around Chattanooga. Tennessee River floating through here. Uh, Chattanooga's in the valley. High ground is Lookout Mountain on the left. Missionary Ridge here, which wasn't all that high, but militarily significant and then Tunnel Hill, real rugged hills up here. Uh, the Union appreciated the value of Chattanooga. The Confederacy, and especially Lee, did not. Uh, Lee turned down, he refused to send more reinforcements down into that area. He at the same time refused to take command in that area. Uh, and the Union recognized that Chattanooga was a two-way street. Number one, it had already been shown by Bragg in the fall of 62 to be a gateway for invading Tennessee, Kentucky, and maybe the, the West the Union West. On the other hand, the door swung both ways, and this could be the gateway for the Union to enter Georgia and divide the remaining parts of the Confederacy in half. And so the Union threw everything they had into, into this conflict at Chattanooga, and the Confederacy, not only did Lee refuse to send more reinforcements down there, Lee had the brilliant idea to take Longstreet, who was part of the 50,000 Confederate troops here, and recommend to Davis that Longstreet be sent up to northeastern Tennessee to try to recapture Knoxville, which became a reality in a disastrous campaign. It was a reality in the sense that Longstreet, in fact, was sent away. So here are the Confederates with about 50,000 troops, uh, semi-surrounding the Union forces here in Chattanooga. These, these guys were in very bad shape. They had one muddy 60-mile-long supply route, and they were basically eating their animals down to about one-third rations. They were literally starving. So Lincoln picked Grant as the man to come in and save the day, but he and Stanton and Halleck uh, knew that Grant was good, but he wasn't that good. He needed help. 
And so uh, they ordered Sherman to come across the Mississippi River all the way across the state, and Sherman became the left flank of Grant's position. Uh, Hooker, here was the biggie. Unlike the Confederacy not sending more reinforcements, the Union sent 20,000 troops under Joe Hooker by train all the way around through about eight states to get here and form the right flank uh, of Grant's uh, uh, campaign. And then Thomas, uh, uh, Grant replaced Rosecrans with Thomas as commander of the army that was originally trapped here in Chattanooga. So you had the three of them. Now, uh, you won't find any of this in Sherman or Grant's memoirs because they tell a fairy tale. The fairy tale is that uh, Sherman, Sherman won this battle. Uh, because that's the way Grant wanted it to play out. He wanted his buddy Sherman to get credit for it. So Sherman had the primary job of attacking on the left flank, and he was supposed to come down and be assisted by these other two. And if that didn't work, Hooker was supposed to roll up the other flank. Turned out Hooker, Sherman got stymied by Patrick Claiborne. Uh, Hooker was slow, and Thomas's men, without specific order from Thomas, Thomas's men won the Battle of Missionary Ridge. They attacked the rifle pits in the center, which was to be a diversion to, to uh, shuffle some troops away from opposing Sherman to get them into the middle. And when they got the rifle pits, they were in no man's land, so they had a choice. Retreat, can't think about that. Stay in the rifle pits and be killed, or what the heck, go up the hill and get the enemy. So they went. They went up Missionary Ridge, uh, and the, with, with the Confederate troops reduced from 50 to 35,000, they were spread out, they had no reserves, and when the break occurred here, there was nothing, nobody to fill it, nobody to fill the gap. So the, the Confederates fled back into Georgia, and that, that then laid the groundwork for Sherman's campaign against Atlanta the next year. Um, I'm going to cut pretty short here and just simply say that uh, at this point, Grant having uh, won this major, major victory at Chattanooga, that many people had not heard about, uh, uh, became a national hero for the third time. Undoubted national hero, third time. And so there's tremendous political pressure in Washington to bring him east as general in chief of, of all the armies. And Lincoln, as your quiz uh, told you, uh, Lincoln was concerned about Grant as an opponent for the presidency. Uh, Lincoln was a politician, and he was probably the greatest politician we've ever had. And he was aware of what was going on. The Democrats won and the Republicans won and it was like Eisenhower after World War II. Everybody wanted them to run. Uh, and because they figured this guy is a sure winner. Go with the winner. So uh, Grant was no fool, and he knew that Lincoln was concerned about that possibility. So he wrote a letter to a friend in Illinois. A friend in Illinois goes to the White House, uh, sees Lincoln. Lincoln says, uh, so what are Grant's presidential plans or aspirations? And it's funny you should ask an answer letter. Here's a letter that Sam wrote to me. And Sam, Sam Grant, uh, had written in the letter, if Lincoln is interested in running for re-election, I have no interest in being president. And Lincoln says, that's my kind of general. Let's get him promoted. <laughs> so uh, that was that. And uh, uh, Grant becomes a lieutenant general in, in March of 64. He comes east. Uh, 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 he decides he doesn't want to be in Washington, probably a wise move. Uh, he decides to keep Halleck on. Halleck had been the, the uh, chief of staff for nine, or I'm sorry, the general in chief for nine to two years at this point. And, he, and so Grant recognized he could use Halleck as a communicator, as a, 
uh, as a translator, communicator, basically a messenger boy between the military and the civilian. So Grant should leave him in charge of all the administrative gobbledygook in Washington and go into the field. Now here's why I think Grant made a mistake. A lot of people argue about whether Grant should have replaced Meade with somebody else who that person should have been. My view, he should have relieved me. He's going to be, Grant's going out and he decides he's going to be in the, uh, in the field with Meade's army in the east, or with, with, we'll say with the army of the Potomac in the east. And to me, the issue is, is do you have one commander or two? And for me, military historian, I say, you want one commander. And so I think what Grant should have done is relieve Meade and then just have himself wear two hats. And he's in the field. No soldiers in the field, no officers, no generals have any doubt who's calling the shots. The super aggressive, go get them, let's win the war grant, or me, great on defense, not real pushy on offense. And this led to problems, Cold Harbor, uh, uh, the Battle of the Crater, etc. The, the fact that there were two commanders out there, I think really created some problems. Be that as it may, grant, grant goes into the field, and so during the, during the Overland campaign then, Grant, uh, Grant is out there, if I have the overland campus. Grant is out there in the field with Meade's army, and most everybody knows it is Grant's army, especially since the press hated Meade, and they never even put his name in the paper. So, <laughs> so, so everything was Grant's army, Grant's this, Grant's that. And of course, as the campaign became something of a bloodbath, Grant took the flak for it. This is where we really pick up the title of Butcher. Keep in mind, this is 1864, presidential election year. Presidential election years are interesting, right? If you're in a war, at the time of the election, you want to appear to be a winner or have very good prospects for winning. So the North, which had been stymied in the East for several years, needed to put, produce a show. Results had to be produced. That's why Grant was brought East. And so he was kind of forced into being a lot more aggressive than he normally was, than all the stuff we've seen before. And uh, so we have the Wilderness, Spotsylvania Courthouse, North Anna uh, River, and Cold Harbor, the disaster at Cold Harbor, which Grant admits he never should have allowed that attack to proceed, uh, and, uh, and on and on. And so Grant is keeping Lee very busy in this theater while Sherman is winning in his theater and eventually captures Atlanta. And that was the most important event of 1864, Sherman's capture of Atlanta, because it tended to pretty much ensure the re-election of Abraham Lincoln. Now, uh, I just want to comment on a couple things here. As this campaign proceeds, uh, Grant keeps reassuring Lincoln that he will stay on this line if it takes all summer. Lincoln picks it up, picks up that line, uses it in a political speech, and he says, we will stay on this line if it takes three years. Uh, and after the Battle of the Wilderness, uh, this is the first time in the East that there had been what could be labeled defeat. Uh, uh, Grant took 18,000 casualties to about Lee's about 12,000. It was a, just a, it was a real bloodbath, and Grant, Grant decided to move on. Well, his army didn't know what Grant was going to do. This is the first time they had been under Grant. So they didn't know what he was going to do. They knew that all the prior Eastern generals, you have a bloody battle like this, they're heading north. They're heading north to regroup and come back some later day. Uh, Grant starts his army the next day, marching uh, down in the Chancellorsville area, and they come to a fork in the road. They're going left, they're heading over toward Fredericksburg, and they're heading over toward Fredericksburg, and they're, they're going to be in a retreat mode. If they go this way, if they go to the right, they're going to be heading toward Richmond. 
and the army sees that the, the, the army is taking their order to take the right flank. The men go wild. They cheer. They throw the hats in the air because they, it sinks in. This is no longer McClellan's army. This is an army of a guy who understands we have to go for the juggler. We have to go win the war. Okay. So that was one of the many turning points of that particular battle. Now I'll just spend one minute on what I spend a 50 50 page chapter, it's a standalone chapter at the end of my Lincoln and Grant book on why the partnership was so successful. And we really don't have time to discuss these other than to mention them. I'll just give you these are my thoughts on why these two guys work together so well. Okay. Uh, pers personal traits. I think they both had similar personal traits which made them individually effective and since they both shared these traits, made them really effective as a team. They were both humble, they were both very decisive, clarity of communications, Grant's orders were prime examples of how you write military orders, moral courage, they both had the guts to do, that which had to be done to win the war, and they stuck with it. Dogged tenacity, perseverance, those words keep coming up uh, in contemporaneous and historical discussions of both men. Well, they, they built on these personal traits and they developed interpersonal relations which were exceptional. First of all, from a distance, they saw each other's performances and developed a mutual respect. Now, I'll, I'll say that Grant was more respect for the office of the president and what he saw coming out of Washington uh, and, uh, and he made it his job to do whatever the president wanted in the way of policy. And as far as Lincoln's respect for Grant, I think that was earned on the battlefield. Lincoln, Lincoln keeps seeing the reports from all over the country, and from, uh, from the very beginning, all the way through Chattanooga, he sees what Grant is accomplishing. And so uh, mutual loyalty develops out of this mutual respect. Mutual loyalty is when you get to the point of each one's covering the other's back. I've mentioned several times where Lincoln covered Grant's back and kept him from being fired. Uh, as Grant got more senior, especially the, the, the general in chief, he does nothing to indicate that he wants to run for president. In fact, the two of them in 64 kept exchanging uh, comments with the press, each one saying the other one would make a great president. Uh, they really covered each other's backs. Mutual loyalty developed out of mutual respect. And then I give examples of how their working relationship uh, worked in practice. This really came as a bit of a surprise to me because when I started to research on this book, I thought that I would find that Lincoln did the political, Grant did the military, they each stated and did their own thing, and that was it. Very short sweep zone. No, I really came to the conclusion that, and maybe this is not surprising, is that Grant, uh, is it, I'm sorry, is that Lincoln was the senior partner by short. Lincoln called the shots. He was the senior man, and, and Grant was very, very, very loyal to him. And we'll see where, where this sort of comes out a bit. National policies, of course, there's no doubt. Lincoln's going to set national policies. When do you have emancipation? Uh, do you use black troops, et cetera? Uh, and Grant salutes and says, yes, that's fine. Uh, military strategy, uh, uh, maybe not too surprisingly, that clearly is Lincoln. Lincoln, again, your quiz had uh, Grant's recommending mobile campaign. Well, actually, he recommended mobile campaigns at least twice and for his own reasons, uh, international reasons in some sense, because the French were intervening in Mexico uh, and uh, Lincoln wanted to send a message to them 
Lincoln was also overly concerned about Eastern Tennessee and didn't want to risk sending troops out of there down to Mobile. So he overruled, and those are just some examples, he overruled several very explicit uh, campaign proposals by Grant. Military strategy, Lincoln called the shots, but there'd be no doubt about it. Now, uh, James McPherson, uh, probably our, our greatest living American uh, Civil War historian, says that, well, once you get to military operations, uh, that's clearly the line has now been crossed, and that's, and that's just Grant. Well, I, I disagree to some extent. Um, um, in this area, for example, Lincoln was the great, was the great tester of, of weapons. He was the one who went out and test fired repeat, right, repeated rifles and said, let's get some of those, which helped to win the war. Lincoln is the guy who pushed for the early construction of the Monitor, which was completed just in time to take on the Merrimack. Um, Lincoln, when he went down to Hampton Roads to visit McClellan, who snubbed him, uh, decided, let's go capture Norfolk. And, and, and led the assault on Norfolk, picking landing spots, which led the, led the Confederates to have to destroy what was left of the Merrimack or the CSS Virginia. Uh, and in the last year of the war, believe me, again and again and again, Lincoln sent these suggestions. And he would say, this is just advice. Yeah, right. Uh, 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 and, and it, it primarily had to do with the threats to Washington from Confederate troops in the Shenandoah Valley always a favorite topic of Lincoln's and a big concern of his. And, and Grant took the hint, maybe a little slowly a couple times, but he took the hint and he did what had to be done. Lincoln got involved in military operations, not just strategy. Uh, now, the fault of it, I have to admit, the generals did, and especially after Grant is the general in chief, uh, he's going to be the primary player, but with significant input from Lincoln. And then my two examples, which I think make, make some, of these, some of these points, Military personnel decisions, manpower in the field, I'll just mention what they were, uh, I won't describe them, but they had to do with uh, the policy of do you use blacks as troops or not, and they, they had to do with uh, prisoner of war exchanges. Very sensitive issues, military and political, and they worked it out. Uh, each one, the beauty of it was that each one understood the, the needs of the other. Uh, and this is also true in the last item, military personnel decisions, the generals. And on that one, what I'm getting at is, is uh, uh, political generals, the Ben Butlers, uh, the Nathaniel Banks of uh, the war, that they were primarily Northern Democrats that Lincoln wanted to have on board to continue uh, pro-war Democratic support of the war. And he didn't want to lose that by uh, firing some of their favorite generals. Uh, and uh, uh, what happened is Grant, Grant found a way to finesse some of those issues and, and did so while remaining loyal to Lincoln. And the payback was after the presidential election of 64, Lincoln felt less compelled to worry about his political support and Grant had a freer hand to finally, for example, get rid of Butler. So these are, these are some critical examples of where they worked very closely on major, major issues. And so I think all this tells you why I think these two formed one of the great partnerships in military history were responsible for winning the Civil War. And I thank you very much for your attention. I've gone on and on. I'll be happy to entertain two questions. Yes, sir. If you read Jonathan Sarner's book, How General Jews, I think you can put any comments on that book. 
Uh, yes, uh, I do. I think he makes a good case that over time, this is for those. Of the, the question is about Grant's expulsion orders, expelling all Jews from his uh, Western Theater command area in uh, December uh, of 1862, I think it was. And and once uh, uh, Lincoln got wind of this from Jewish political leaders, the word went quickly back through Halleck to Grant as softly as possible, saying. We understand what you were trying to do, but you overkilled. You've got Jewish soldiers. What are you, you know, what are you doing? So the order was revoked by Lincoln, uh, and it's a real blot on Grant's record. Uh, uh, it's, it was a basis for, for for contemporaneous and later accusations of being anti-Semite. And I think that the book makes a really good case for over time, Lincoln uh, Grant understood the mistake he had made and tried to make up for it, and and ended up being very sympathetic and helpful to Jewish leaders uh, and Jewish people in the country, especially during his presidency. I think it's a very good book, very insightful, um, and it is something that should not be covered up. Grant blew it, uh, and uh, my suspicion is he did it because of his father. Uh, Grant's father was a wheeler dealer trying to take advantage of the fact that his son is this great general, and so he was in league with a lot of cotton traders, and the big deal was you got to the, the, where the Confederate and Union lines were, and you got coffee uh, or uh, medical supplies or whatever, and you basically traded with the enemy to get cotton and made a fortune on cotton. And Grant was fed up with all this trading going on in his theater, so he lost his temper, just signed this order without really considering exactly what he was saying. Instead of attacking the, the traders as a class, he attacked the Jewish people, is what he ended up doing. A bad mistake on his part. Uh, but I think the book makes the case that he was not an anti-Semite. Yes, sir. Does Grant deal with this in his memoirs? I don't. I don't believe he does. To tell you the truth, I don't believe he does. No. Was there a question over here? Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> it seems when I look at this list <clears throat> that I see that that Lincoln, although it stated, was a visionary. He saw the big picture. He yeah. saw the anaconda. He saw. You know, let's go. And he chose Grant because Grant wasn't he also a visionary? And yeah. then And then Grant chose Sherman, who was also a visionary. He saw the big picture. He had some trouble mm. in details, but he saw the big picture. Right. I, I think that's a very good point. And I do. I do think there was a difference. I think that Lincoln was more visionary than Grant, but you took the best one you could on the next level. And but I, I, I agree. They were both. They were both visionaries. Uh, uh, Lincoln was a national visionary. Grant was a national military visionary with the stress of military, because Grant, because Lincoln had to take into account political and diplomatic and military all at the same time, whereas all, all Grant had to be concerned with was military. But the, the the reason the relationship worked, in my opinion, is Grant understood that Lincoln had all these other concerns, and so when he told him, "No, you can't do this campaign, uh, or you can't do something else the way you want to do it." Grant said, okay, I understand. I'll find another way to do it. Yes. Uh, knowing that uh, Grant uh, had reason to distrust McClellan, nonetheless, McClellan appeared to have fought well at Donaldson, Shiloh as well. Mm -hmm. The inexperienced troops were up front. Uh, and he also led the campaign into Mississippi. How do we account for what appears to be Grant's reliance on McClellan to do that. Yeah, I think I think McClernand, uh, well, and McClernand had also uh, 
uh, uh, captured, he went up the Arkansas River and captured Helena, was it? Uh, uh, and uh, uh, so he had done some fine things militarily. McClernand's problem was he was a schemer. He was unethical. Uh, for example, beginning of the, this long Vicksburg campaign, there were orders issued. Do not take wives, do not take personal goods. Uh, McClernand probably loaded the barge with his wife and, and, and servants and personal goods. Uh, there was an order to uh, no, firing, no firing of guns uh, because we didn't want to waste ammunition or call attention to ourselves. And McClernand had some celebrations in which they fired guns. After, uh, uh, after uh, Port, uh, what was the first battle after they crossed the river? Uh, Port Gibson. After Port Gibson, um, um, uh, the fighting had barely stopped before McClernand and the governor of Illinois were standing up giving political speeches to the troops, uh, which Grant quickly called on it. So really, uh, McClernand was not bad militarily, but uh, he, had, he left much to be desired, I think, on the, the ethical, moral side. Yes, sir. Was Grant's motivation in prosecuting the war primarily as a professional soldier, countries at war, you follow orders and do what's necessary, or in addition, did he have personal hostility to the idea of secession or the institution of slavery? Uh, I, would, I would say it was being pro-union. I think it's a classical example of being caught up in the fact that the Confederate, and this is where Lincoln was genius, I think. He, compelled, he forced the Confederates into a situation where they chose to fire in Fort Sumter. You cannot underplay that in, in the entire history of the war because that created unionism. It's somebody is attacking our country and so it's really defending the union. That was, I think that was his primary motive. Slavery, uh, he did not have a personal stake in it. Uh, uh, as I, at one point he fell into owning a slave, I think through his wife's family, and, and basically freed him. Uh, he, he, he could have sold him for $1,000, he freed him. Uh, and, but so, so he had no, uh, he had no strong, he was not a secessionist, uh, I'm sorry, he was not an abolitionist, uh, uh, but he, he didn't have a great deal of sympathy for slavery, but he was not on an anti-slavery campaign. The anti-slavery, the anti anti-secession, the pro-black soldier, that was all part of the military. So it was defending the Union and then that meant then defeating the Confederacy and then doing whatever you had to do militarily or in line with the national policies to get that accomplished. Yes, sir. When you put the chart up on the board earlier about the elite capacity <coughs> total of yes. 9,000, did that include the Army? Yes, yes, it does. Yes, it does. It includes, includes that. And that was Army number three. Well, one last question. Any more questions? Okay, well, thank you again like for your kind of hospitality. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Ed. Okay. Um, we'd also like to thank uh, Ed for his outstanding presentation. In, um, in Ed's name, our roundtable will contribute $100 through the Civil War Trust to the Battlefield of Antietam. And that segues into next month's speaker, which will be Tom Clemens, talking about the Antietam campaign. So everyone have a great weekend, and we'll see you next month. <laughs>